And now, proper propaganda. Watch it. Pull my mic back. You like that? Journalists with journalists too. We can strike back. Hardcore reporters with orders from headquarters. Behind enemy lines. Sidestepping the border. You're just tuning in to Civic Cipher. I'm your host, Ramses Ja. He is Ramses Ja. I am Q Ward. You guys are back. DGR. Um, got a lot more in store for you, so be sure to stick around. We're still talking about stereotypes and how they impact our lives and shape outcomes. We're going to be talking about protesting while black. This is a big one uh, for us because how do we change the world if we are not able to make our voices heard or if that act appears criminal and the optics surrounding it make us appear more sinister than we actually are? Listen, Ramses, if you don't like it here, leave uh, that that's 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 unacceptable because that would be me failing you my non-black brothers and sisters you deserve better than what you've been shown we're also going to uh, discuss some the roots of some uh, stereotypes in our way black history facts so stick around for that as well but uh right about now let's take a break and let's talk about becoming a better ally baba so today's B.A.B.A. Baba is sponsored by Unknown Union, the fashion house situated at the intersection of meaning, innovation, and culture. For more info, check out unknownunion.com. I'm going to be reading from Essence Magazine. A skate park, a skate park sorry, in California has been named in honor of Tyree Nichols, a black motorist who was killed in January in what prosecutors said was a fatal beating by police in Tennessee during a traffic stop. Obviously, we talked about Tyree Nichols and still talk about Tyree Nichols. Um, I'll keep reading. Nichols, who was an avid skateboarder, spent much of his time as a youth at the park on the outskirts of Sacramento. City officials and others held a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the newly renovated skate park now named for Nichols, the Associated Press reports. The 29-year-old moved to Memphis, Tennessee shortly before the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 and resided with his mother and stepfather. He enjoyed past tense he enjoyed photography especially taking photos of landscapes and sunsets and one of the cool things that um happened uh uh, many of you may know that i uh host a podcast for iheart and black information network um q sometimes guest hosts on this podcast and q actually was able to interview tyree nichols's good friend jerome neal jr who I believe was involved in this effort. And you got to talk to him for a little bit, right? Yeah, it was a difficult conversation to have because, again, we're speaking in the past tense about, yeah, he wasn't a kid, he was a young man. But in the very, very early sunrise of his life Mm -hmm. and and so much that he didn't get to experience, once again, because of that suffix. Mm -hmm. Wild black. Wild black. (laughs) Driving, skating, teaching, living, shopping, eating. When you put wild black on the end of all of those things, we collectively understand what's coming. Yeah. What's in coming the with. rest of that conversation. Now, listen, okay, we're going to talk about protesting now, but I don't want this conversation to sound to you, our listener, like, woe is me. We believe that we can all be better to each other. I think <laughs> it is criminal that we have to qualify it like yeah. that. But because there are people that will hear this and very apathetically, their minds will go right to 
Ah, woe is me. They're always complaining. Yeah. And I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 no. I think that's that's the perfect way to kind of segue because they're always complaining is often the attitude adopted by people who want nothing to do with it. Um, what is this? What is the the saying that we hear uh, so often? Um, to the uh, I'm I'm paraphrasing. I don't know if this is exactly it, but to the privileged. Equality feels like oppression. And I believe it's something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so voicing our concerns or complaining as as this imaginary person might call it, um, is perhaps annoying, right? And so they want what they get often from the media which is what we're talking about today when it comes to protesting, which is basically an amplified version of complaining. So I appreciate you setting me up for the segue here. Protesting while black. Now, Q and I were on a on another radio show called The Beat Lock with a good friend of ours. Uh, shout out to Poker Face. Um, this was a recent interview that we did. And... He, we were asked about the origin story for this show here, Civic Cipher. And for those that don't know the origin story, this show was based out of the protests of 2020. Q and I would show up to the protests for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, but at, also at the time, Q and I were radio personalities on a hip-hop station. I guess we are. We're on way more hip-hop stations now, but... This, this was our occupation. We were DJs, radio personalities. This was kind of what we did. We were nightclubs and we talked on the radio. Right? So being out there, we felt like, hey, we should probably capture some of this magic, some of these narratives, some of these conversations and put it on the radio so that we can combat the narrative that is being chronicled by the news outlets saying that we're out rioting. Mm-hmm. These are not riots as illustrated by the fact that we are here with our children. And indeed many of our allies are here with their children as well. There's no riots. There's no smoke. There's no burning. None of this sort of stuff. Right. But we would go home at the end of the day and watch the news and we would see uh, that it was reported that there were riots. And it's like, well, that didn't very, happen. Very where we were. overtly slanted. Yeah yeah negative um kind of violent inciting mm-hmm, exactly. reporting so so what would what would happen is police would end up cornering certain activists and they were targeted because they had the facial recognition stuff and this is we're talking about our city in phoenix you feel free to check this out because they've had to come out and admit all this stuff but they had facial recognition things that they set up on different corners uh i have a couple of businesses downtown so i was down there every day this was happening. So I saw all this stuff. They had the sound cannons and the, all the police presence and all that sort of stuff. They were targeting specific folks. I suspect they weren't targeting me and you because of our higher profile and our capacity to. I mean, I don't I don't know because our profiles are a lot higher now. Now. Yeah. Um, I, I think they weren't targeting us because the proximity to our children made us move very very carefully in those perhaps, spaces perhaps that was it but i know for a fact we that we stayed it, out of the way right but i know for a fact that at least my name was on those people's radar mm-hmm. um for being there 
Again, no crimes, nothing like that. Um, well, so, and sometimes when you're there and you look like you, there's the crime. Go ahead and say it. So, um, we're telling our story. We're we're describing what's going on. Um, and then the narrative that we're seeing on the news is that it's criminal activity. The police were picking off protesters here and there. They'd turn a wrong corner or be going to their car or whatever. And then uh, the police would swoop in. Other folks would see it and try to go and help and protect because, again, you got to understand the climate of the country at that time. You see police running after someone black. Immediately, you're like, oh, my God, the worst could happen. This happened to us when we were pulled over in Mississippi. Everybody was people were crying because they were fearing the worst about what could have happened to us based on what they were seeing our inner of our, our interaction with the police. Now, parts of those uh, clips were being shared. And then it was, like you said, it, they were kind of um, skewing the conversation in such a way to suggest that the protests were unsafe, that pe the police and the, the protesters were fighting somehow, which isn't true. The police have guns. Protesters have bullhorns. It's not the same, <laughs> you know what I mean? But this is kind of what helps the media keep the viewership of the people who really want it to be true that black people are always complaining and that, you know, uh, the people that have the privilege to whom equality feels like oppression. Go ahead. You know, the really interesting thing is even for those who are the most cynical of our position and really, really feel like, you know, like, again, woe is me and you guys are always complaining how our law enforcement responds is very, very telling. You know, so the people are probably wondering about the wild black part, especially considering so many of the protesters here were not black, mm. except the cause they were standing for was real was black, very black. <laughs> yeah. And therein lies the difference. Even, quote unquote, their own are treated the way that we're treated if you're standing up for us. Yeah. And the largest example was January 6th. Because prior to that, when the idea was Black Lives Matter protesters will be present, the police militarized themselves, tanks, riot gear, yeah. and came out in Facial mass. recognition. And came out in mass. I'm not even talking about the technology. I'm talking about the physical presence. Yeah, they had came out the with big guns. The big... And big guns. Yeah. And full yeah, tactical it gear. It looked like soldiers. Not... To make sure we didn't show up and harm any property. January 6th, a date that they were made privy was coming. They were told we're going to go not just show up. We're going to go take over. Yeah. And they were conspicuously absent because white supremacy has a very hard time checking white supremacy. A very hard time. And that's a bar. All right, let me give you this. So we're talking about riots. We're talking about protesting that are described as riots and then fed to the masses. And these things help shape public opinion. And this is what leads to stereotypes. Okay, Dr. King, he's known for his nonviolent, peaceful protests, his marches, right? 
He's known for that now. He is not known for that when he was doing well, his he was, non- he was known for it, then he just wasn't celebrated for it. Okay, that's a that's a good way to say it. However, he was infamous for his marches and how, his speeches sure, when sure. he was alive. So watch this. There would be let's say he did five marches. Um, there might be a skirmish between the protesters and the police at two of them. And in our estimation, it was probably provoked by the police. Okay. But that's so all that's necessary for this time. I do mean to cut my brother off Go ahead. because of his grace. I love Ramses. He said that those <laughs> skirmishes were probably. <laughs> yes. I paused on purpose. The mic did not cut off. <laughs> those skirmishes were probably started or instigated by the police. Yeah. There's video, people. We don't have to use probable, right? I guess we have to, you know, what are they saying in court? Uh, allegedly, even when they have video. <laughs> the video, it's funny. So, yeah, I'm going to say those skirmishes, skirmishes, sorry, were allegedly started by the police <laughs> and their dogs and fire hoses sure. and billy clubs. And yeah. yeah. So while he was alive, Folks like to challenge that narrative that he was a peaceful, benevolent leader type of individual. Hence, his 20% approval rating among white Americans and critically, his 20% approval rating among black Americans. Right? So stereotypes can affect black people as well. Okay? Now, of course, we know the end of that story. Dr. King is, as you mentioned, Q, celebrated for his nonviolent approach to changing at least that time in American history for the better for marginalized people, right? But it wasn't until after his death that the government took it seriously and actually changed some lighting what might have been, uh, it wasn't Nixon, what's his name? Uh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, one of the presidents changed the the laws after his death because there were so many eruptions around the country after that. So, protests. Dr. King said that a riot is the language of the unheard. Now, there are people that push back and say, listen, you need to be patient. You guys need to be patient. These things move slowly. The wheels of society turn very slowly. This is a long road. I say that. I I have I have occupied different space, but yes, you do. Yeah, I occupy a different space, but I can say that because I'm indeed marching on that road. Someone else in a position of power cannot say that to me because they don't get to define what justice should be like or how long it should take. And I want to quote James Baldwin. Actually, do me a favor. You can read. <laughs> the James Baldwin quote, because I know you love this one. I might get this quote tattooed <laughs> um, because I do love it. And it is, it is a quote that Ramses is laughing as he says he knows I love it because Ramses en- encourages me and reminds me that this is a that this progress is slow mm-hmm. and that we should be patient and one step at a time and yada, yada, yada. And this incremental approach to this progress that could overnight 
by way of legislation just be changed is insulting to me. Um, James Baldwin said, and I quote, it has taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's time, and my sister's time, my nieces and nephews time. How much time do you want for your progress? <laughs> right. The multiple lifetimes of our ancestors. We've already given that time. You've already taken that time. And in, in what world do we get where we're going? Do I do I pass away knowing or having some type of understanding that for my grandchildren, things will be different, that things will be better? That's still a question. I, th I think I'm going to add to it that it you're saying that it is possible for things to, to change overnight. So I think that that statement in and of itself suggests more than suggests that it is very possible to make huge sweeping changes, not just in terms of laws, but in terms of public opinion and how we interact with each other over the course of a lifetime to where a person could see the world is in a much better place hence, than it was when we started. Hence my frustration. Mm. So I'm with you. So watch this. Now we talked about protesting because often enough protesting is the 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 language that we have that is has been relatively consistent in terms of our plight in terms of our arsenal toward achieving a, a more equitable america let me let me say what i'm going to say watch this when we want to vote sometimes that's taken away from us uh there I countless black men permanently disenfranchised because they've been they've they they're convicted felons. We could talk about that. That is almost grotesquely unfair, but permanently disenfranchised. We can talk about access to voting. We can talk about gerrymandering, weakening the strength of a black person's vote, which weakens the value of the black person's experience in terms of input to the relative to the, to the overall American experience. Right. And so protesting is kind of that last vestige, that last tool that, that many people feel like they have. And for that to then be villainized and conflated with rioting is exceptionally unfair. And it's based on stereotypes that I do want to challenge. Now I want you to jump in right here, but I got some examples it will help me challenge this idea of what a protest is. Go ahead. I guess my, my problem is more with the idea that protesting is somehow still a vehicle for us. I don't think it is. Now we do it kind of out of a duty. There's no outcome. We don't, we don't leave city hall after our protest. And then they text us like, okay, you guys came out. We heard you. We're going to like, no, that doesn't happen. Right. So it's, it's a, it's more a symbol of solidarity and a way for us to air our grievances and our frustrations amongst each other. The, the lawmakers and the policymakers, they don't come out to these protests, listen to our plight, hear our points, take that back to their body and make changes based on that anymore. And once upon a time, I think the idea of a protest was so scary, right? There would be, um, in some cases, like boycotts and strikes, there are fiscal damages that happen. People lose money and they respond to that. 
But us just showing up in mass upset does not tend to really move the needle like it once did. Now, um, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I can't wholly agree with you there. I think that there may still be some value, but critically, if you have no other form of representation it, in, in terms of the government, then showing up with your person and the sign is not nothing. No, Sitting at home is nothing. Be right? clear. I did not say it was nothing. Right. I, and I also did not say it didn't have value. Yeah. It so, is just not the vehicle that it once was. Sure. Okay. And when that's, that's, we can quantify that. Yeah. I want to make sure that, because I, I, like I said, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I want to make sure that we say that for our listeners. It has, it has qualitative value, okay. not quantitative. Now, here's what I want to do. Um, for folks that take issue with riots. First off, um, earlier we were talking about, you know, uh, shopping while black, right? And, and how stereotypes work. The, 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 the stereotypes that black people steal, right? But the truth is that that other people steal from black people. Culture, of course. Liberty, as I mentioned, right to vote, access to, you know, um, representation, etc. Wealth. This country's story is littered with massacres and riots and legislation and so forth. Terrorism, black codes, Jim Crow, redlining the GI Bill, etc. Of stealing wealth from black people stealing very right? intentionally too, not just happenstance hold on we weren't collateral damage we were the target yeah to to take from us yes. right life stealing life from us uh we we talk about black life being snuffed out all the time and 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 people getting away with it with no consequences creation intellectual property but even if it's not go on, even if we're not talking about murder, uh, we just talked about the prison industrial complex. People get sentenced unfairly in this country. It's stealing life. OK, now black people have the stereotype. But I don't think that that's entirely fair. I'm going to make another point here. Black people have a stereotype of being aggressive rioters when we're protesting. So I'm going to read some stuff about riots. For sports teams around the country that uh, celebrated or I guess rioted um, after the As sports a form team. of celebration right or, or of, of loss I'm just read these just so you know and I want you to ask yourself why is there no stereotype that these people riot but why is there a stereotype to black people I'm gonna read Denver Nuggets Obviously, they won the national championship recently. This was know, a couple weeks ago, maybe. Two hours later, thousands went to McGregor Square and destroyed it. Uh, in Boston in 2004, 2007, and 2013, uh, the Red Sox was the baseball team. Everybody got out there and rioted all three of those years. Boston. Okay. Detroit, 1984. Detroit has a team called Tigers. They probably play some cool sport. And then the Detroit Tigers are a baseball team. Boom. That's what I was on. All right. And then 1990, the Detroit Pistons. That's a basketball team. I know them. In 2011, the Vancouver Canucks 
lost the 2011 Stanley Cup to the Boston Bruins, and fans trashed parts of the city, causing millions of dollars in damage. Philadelphia Eagles, they riot all the time uh, in Philly. Chicago in 1991 through 93, uh, that was basketball. Denver in 96, the Avalanche is a hockey team, 98, the Broncos, 99, 2001, the Avalanche hockey team again. And in Cleveland in 1974, baseball team. All right, sit with it. It's time for the Way Black History Fact, sponsored by Underground Beach Club from the streets to the beach. The finest in beachwear, visit undergroundbeachclub.com. Today, I'll be reading from the National Museum of African American History and Culture slash the Smithsonian. Shout out to our people over at the Smithsonian for working with us all the time. We're discussing widespread and pervasive stereotypes of African Americans. All right. Stereotypes of African Americans grew as a natural consequence of both scientific racism and legal challenges to both their personhood and citizenship. In the 1857 Supreme Court case, Dred Scott versus John F.A. Sanford, Chief Justice Roger B. Taney discussed the human humanness of those of African descent. This legal precedent permitted the image of African Americans to be reduced to caricatures in popular culture. Decades old ephemera and current day incarnations of African American stereotypes, including Mammy, Mandingo, Sapphire, Uncle Tom, and Watermelon, have been informed by the legal and social status of African Americans. Many of the stereotypes created during the height of the transatlantic slave trade were used to help commodify black bodies and justify the business of slavery. For instance, an enslaved person forced under violence to work from sunrise to sunset could hardly be described as lazy, yet laziness as well as characteristics of submissiveness, backwardsness, lewdness, treachery, and dishonesty historically became stereotypes assigned to African Americans. The Mamie stereotype developed as an offensive racial caricature constructed during slavery and popularized primarily through minstrel shows. Enslaved black women were highly skilled domestic workers, working in the homes of white families and caretakers for their children. The trope painted a picture of domestic workers who had undying loyalty to their slaveholder as caregivers and counsel. This image ultimately sought to legitimize the institution of slavery. The Mammy stereotype gained increased popularity after the Civil War, War and into the 1900s. During this time, her robust grinning likeness was attached to mass-produced consumer goods, from flour to motor oil. Considered a trusted figure in white imaginations, Mamies represented contentment and served as nostalgia for whites concerned about racial equality. The Pearl Milling Company's incarnation of the smiling domestic Aunt Jemima became synonymous with the Mammy stereotype. In 1899, the company hired real-life cook Nancy Green to portray the character at various state and world affairs. The stereotype and the overweight, self-sacrificing, and dependent Mammy figure would grow alongside the American film industry through works including Birth of a Nation, Imitation of Life, and Gone with the Wind. All right, Uncle Tom. Uncle Tom, written by Harriet Beecher Stowe in 1852, featured the title character as a large, broad-chested, powerfully made man whose truly African features were characterized by an express expression of grave and steady good sense, united with much kindliness and benevolence. He forfeits his own chance at escaping bondage and loses his life to ensure the freedom of other slaves. It's a much different idea of what Uncle Tom means in the black community today. Mm. All right. The stereotype of Uncle Tom is innately submissive, obedient, and in constant desire of white approval. The term became popular during the Great Migration when many Southern-born blacks moved to northern cities. 
like New York, Chicago, and Detroit. With them, they brought codes of conduct expected in hostile Jim Crow environments. The stereotype was first publicly recorded during an address by Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association member, Reverend George Alexander McGuire in 1919. Do not call a black person an Uncle Tom unless you know what you're talking about. That is a serious and, accusation. And even then, please be prepared. <laughs> be very careful to deal, be, deal with that. All right, Sapphire. The Sapphire caricature from the 1800s to the mid-1900s popularly portrayed black women as sassy, emasculating, and domineering. Unlike the mammy figure, this trope depicted African-American women as aggressive, loud, and angry, in direct violation of social norms. The Sapphire stereotype earned its name on the CBS television show Amos and Andy, in association with the character Sapphire Stevens. Airing from 1951 to 1953, with an all-black cast, Sapphire Stevens was the wife to George Kingfish Stevens, a character depicted as ignorant and lazy, fueling Sapphire's rage. During the Jim Crow period when blacks were often beaten, jailed, or killed for arguing with whites, these fictional characters would pretend chastise whites, including men. Their sassiness was supposed to indicate their acceptance as members of the white family and acceptance of that sassiness was implied that slavery and segregation were not overly oppressive. Watermelon. Before it became a racist stereotype in the Jim Crow era, watermelon once symbolized self-sufficiency among African-Americans. Following emancipation, many Southern African-Americans grew and sold watermelons and it became a symbol of their freedom. Many Southern whites reacted to this self-sufficiency by turning the fruit into a symbol of poverty. Watermelon came to symbolize a feast for the unclean, lazy, and childlike. To shame black watermelon merchants, popular ads, and uh, including postcards, pictured African-Americans stealing, fighting over, or sitting in streets eating watermelon. Watermelons being eaten hand to mouth without utensils made it impossible to consume without making a mess and therefore branded a public nuisance. All right, last one. Mandingo the Black Buck. Conjured by the minds of enslavers and auctioneers to promote strength and breeding ability and agility of muscular young black men, the Mandingo trope was born. While under the violence of enslavement, a physically powerful black man could be subdued and brutally forced into labor. Emancipation brought with it fears that these men would exact sexual revenge against white men through their daughters, as depicted in the film Birth of a Nation. The reinforcement of the stereotype of the Mandingo as animalistic and brutish gave legal authority to white mobs and militias who tortured and killed black men for the, quote, safety of the public. Uh, headlines of newspapers across the nation beginning around the turn of the century documented frenzy of arrests, attempted lynchings, and murders of black brutes accused of insulting or assaulting white women. I feel like this is kind of the reason that they were able to rile so many people up and take the life of Emmett Till. Um, heavyweight boxing champion Jack Johnson epitomized the Mandingo or Black Brute of white imaginations in the flesh. Called a beast, brute, and a coon in print, Johnson's relationships with white women took up as much newsprint as his fighting abilities. With his 1910 victory over James Jeffries, promoted as the Great White Hope, Johnson brought white fears to a head. The result was weeks of riotous mob violence across the nation that left thousands of African-American communities and lives in ruin. So that's just a handful of stereotypes that uh, the origins of a lot of those stereotypes and they've evolved and they've taken on new shapes. But, you know, um, 
those are harmful. They shape outcomes clearly. We talked about, I mentioned Emmett Till, um, you know, that it, had they not been coerced into thinking something that wasn't true. They didn't really have to be coerced. Though. Yeah, I think they got what they wanted. Yeah. I mean, that was just what we, uh, what we like to call now, just their already things they already believed being confirmed. Yeah. Confirmation right? bias. Confirmation okay. Well, um, a lot to think about today. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in once again to Civic Cipher. I'm your host, Ramses Ja. I am continually, perpetually, mentally and emotionally exhausted because these things are true every day, not just when we crack our microphones to tell you about them. And so many of the things that come across our desk we don't even get to talk about. Sure. We left a lot on the cutting room floor, as yeah. it were. But we do appreciate your continued support. And uh, hit us up. CivicCypher.com. Uh, follow us on social media. Like, comment, share. Yeah. Hit us on YouTube. You can be critical, too. Talk to us. Yeah. Um, we talk back. And do me a favor. Send Q some love. <laughs> All right. And until next week, y'all. Peace. Peace. Stepping the borders with press passes, we bring it to you as it happens. The streets love my crew for music and rapping. Street commander slash beat expander, here to fight the slander with the proper propaganda. What's happening? You got a question, then ask it. The news is just a TV show, get past it. And this from a quiet wartime journalist headlines. Wake up, refuse, and resist. Like this, like this, like this, like this.